0: On your travels across the continent, you may pass through several atomic cities. Some are large, some are small. But they are all good cities to live in, in which to raise your family, make friends, and enjoy a full life. Atomic cities, cities near atomic laboratories, will become more numerous as nuclear energy work expands. As we continue to travel into the atomic age, So continue your journey across the country. Who knows? Possibly your own community may one day become an atomic city through the magic
1: of the atom. Hey all welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host Bushido Squirrel, and today I want to present a very special deep dive into the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, exploring the connection between the military-industrial complex, climate change, and disaster capitalism.
0: In the control center 500 feet away, the firing operator is stationed at an electrical sequencing panel. Timers and relays control ignition, opening of propellant tank valves, and the hydrogen peroxide tank valve. The operator presses the launch start button, and the unit automatically sequences tank pressurization, igniter, and the main propellant valves. Preliminary burning, okay. Main stage.
1: As of recording, the Woolsey Fire is still burning through a large swath of Los Angeles and Ventura counties. Since Friday, November 9th, three people have been killed, hundreds of buildings have been destroyed, and nearly 100,000 acres have burned. All of Malibu has been evacuated, though residents have been able to return to some areas. Further east, new evacuation orders have been issued and are still anticipated by many. As the fire has developed, focus has been brought to a very strange piece of Los Angeles history, the Santa Susana Field Laboratory. First through social media posts by community and physician groups, and then by reporting in more mainstream sources, it has come out that the Woolsey fire started on the now-closed grounds of Santa Susana, a significantly contaminated site nestled in the Simi Hills. The Santa Susana site is significant for several reasons, and I want to explore them, but before I get into that, I want to frame this explicitly in terms of the military-industrial complex and climate change. All over California we find toxic sites left over from military bases, testing facilities, and engineering experiments gone awry. The legacy has become part of our culture in many ways. Slab City, which is situated on a former marine base, is world famous as quote, the last free place in America. In this barren wasteland, an off-grid art gallery and a monument to the Christian faith have sprung up. East Jesus and Salvation Mountain present what may be the only silver lining on this map of human error—momentary bursts of creative energy performatively generating fleeting art on a dead canvas. Even then, Slab City is not a place that many people would choose as their home. I've met residents who credibly claim that they were dumped there by law enforcement. While there are some services provided to the people that live there, for the most part, they're on their own. A neglected patch of desert caught in limbo, a dumping ground of sorts. Most of California's 94 Superfund sites do not house outsider art or diverse communities or a media reputation that affords them some protection. 16 of these Superfund sites are in Los Angeles County. As climate change drives more destructive fires across the state, it is only a matter of time before another toxic site is directly affected.
0: What assurances can we give them that if they purchase this land to build their homes on or to keep this land for gardening or what have you, that it's safe? If you want to feel more protected, you
1: need to get the site cleaned up so there's no longer a source. That's the rest of it, it there's not much we can do get rid of that source, that's the key thing that we have to do, the contamination on the hill that wants to go off the hill. The Santa Susana Field Lab, or SSFL, was opened in 1947 to test rocket engines, missile technology, and nuclear reactors. Engines were developed for models of intercontinental ballistic missiles and even the Apollo missions. What's most interesting, though, is the history of nuclear accidents at this site. Santa Susana was the site of the first commercial nuclear reactor in the United States and the site of the first core meltdown in the world. The sodium reactor experiment ran from 1957 until 1964. Ultimately, most nuclear research at the facility was shut down by 1978. The reactor building was finally dismantled in 1989. In total, 10 reactors were built and operated. Since this was long before any federal environmental regulation, there was no containment built around many of them, contaminated waste was not properly treated or stored, and years worth of literal nuclear waste have just never been accounted for. Four of the 10 reactors are known to have suffered accidents. In 1959, the first core meltdown occurred, as I said, at the SRE. Keep in mind, this was a world first, but was kept secret until after the Three Mile Island disaster 20 years later. The Department of Energy engaged in a sustained, decades-long cover-up of the accidents at the site, and ultimately it was academic researchers that stumbled upon the documents and brought them public. There were also numerous fires associated with radioactive materials at the reactors and the labs.
0: So they're decladding these fuel elements, and that's creating dust and dirt and so on. Well, occasionally they would have a fire or a flood. And what do the workers do? I mean, you run. You absolutely run when the fire alarm goes off or or any other, other radiation alarm. You run, because it may
1: mean your life. But back to the SRE and its meltdown. This meltdown left damaged fuel rods and caused radioactive gas to be released, presumably to drift over the city unheralded. However, things could have been much worse. Unlike many reactors which use water to submerge the fuel rods, the sodium reactor used sodium in the tank. This provided some protection when the core finally melted down, as Michio Kaku explained. Luckily, the fission product release, that is the release of radioactive materials, was contained within the sodium. But there was always a chance that if fuel melting had proceeded unchecked, that it would have been released into the surrounding area, especially iodine and strontium. The iodine and strontium are very dangerous because the iodine goes to the thyroid glands of young children causing thyroid cancer, and the uh, strontium goes to the bones of growing children causing leukemia. But it gets so much worse. Two sodium burn pits are also known to be highly contaminated radioactive and toxic waste was simply burned in the pits despite all safety guidance. One worker reported that of the 27 men on his crew that worked the burn pit, 22 died of cancer.
0: Suppose you are a worker in an atomic energy plant located near one of these atomic cities. This is you coming home to your family. Aside from the usual safety precautions, what steps are taken to protect you at work? Matter of fact, there are many, so many that working in these plants is among the safest
1: occupations in the world. At times, workers would destroy barrels of waste by shooting them with rifles so that they would explode and spray their contents into the air. All we know for sure is that this practice had stopped by the 1990s. In 1994, two scientists were killed when the waste they were illegally burning exploded. A decade later, three Rocketdyne officials pleaded guilty to illegally storing explosive materials in connection with the accident. Decades of accidents and willful negligence have piled up on the site, leaving contaminated soil, water, and vegetation. Boeing took over ownership of the site in 1996, and closed it entirely in 2006. Despite the seeming urgency and toxicity of the site, ongoing legal battles are hampering mitigation. In 2005, a fire ripped through the site and caused significant damage community organizations and physicians groups expressed alarm at the possibility that this radioactive contamination was spread over residential areas. We know that during the years of operation and especially the years when proper disposal techniques weren't followed, that smoke from the facility spread out over much of the area which already had significant residential development, including the neighborhoods of Simi Valley, Northbridge, and Chatsworth. It was quite unusual. Uh, normally you dispose of radioactive materials in specially designed and licensed radioactive waste facilities. So open-air burning was not supposed to
0: occur uh, for anything radioactive, but we did it anyway. So this burning was in the
1: open-air overlooking Simi Absolutely. Valley. And Absolutely.
0: The smoke would travel all over the complex up there, including Rocketdyne and uh, the Atomics International Complex, and it would travel uh, into Simi Valley as well as the San Fernando Valley. And radioactive and
1: chemical waste really weren't supposed to be burned there, just clean sodium, but they ended up having a fair amount of radioactivity and chemicals. And we've got now contamination both in the groundwater beneath that site and some of it migrated off site to what was then the Brandeis Camp
0: Institute. Yes, that is true.
1: Shutting down the reactors and even closing the site entirely has done little to reverse the damage done by these radioactive and toxic substances. Things like strontium-90 and cesium are taken up by the body's natural function because the body mistakes them for necessary chemicals like calcium and potassium. Each of these chemicals has a half-life of about 30 years, but in order to become inert and harmless, you need about 100 half-life cycles to pass. That means that someone who is exposed to radioactive gases released in 1959 would need to have those compounds in the body until 2559 for them to be harmless. Basically, once you are exposed to these waste gases, they are with you for life. Before urbanization took over, the San Fernando Valley was home to agricultural production. Livestock was raised for meat and dairy. There were huge groves of citrus, all of which were exposed directly or indirectly to this waste. After radioactive gases were released, they went on to be taken up by the soil and air to be recycled down again by rain and spread by the wind. Each new generation of plants and animals was taking up old and new radioactive waste to pass down the food chain. Humans were continuously exposed to this waste for decades. And in fact, people are still being exposed. So
0: these are incredibly toxic things. That's where, we, again, we, we emphasize there is no
1: safe level. You can take it in now, but it just sits there and, and, and emits and emits and emits and emits, okay? And if you're lucky and you don't get it in within years or decades, I think that's great. But, I mean, you never know. You're never outside that. Risk. Significant damage was done to humans, animals, and the environment during the operations, and this damage has continued after the shutdown and dismantling of the nuclear reactors. More distressing is the knowledge that water from the sodium burn pits has run off the site contaminating nearby bodies of water and groundwater stores. SSFL had eight wells on site. Of those, seven have tested as highly contaminated. And despite assurances from the California Department of Toxic Substances Control, many residents worry about the lingering contamination. Investigations into the contamination on the site did not really begin until the 1990s. And it wasn't until Boeing took over the site that there was any movement towards mitigating the toxicity. Legal wrangling over the cleanup, mainly between government agencies and private companies tossing the potato back and forth as to who should pay for the cleanup, has resulted in a slow and ineffective process. In California, the Department of Toxic Substances Control is responsible for monitoring these sites and keeping the public updated, but DTSC has not been seen as a credible actor by the community. Instead of taking direct action, the DTSC has spent decades telling neighbors not to worry, that the contamination is contained and the danger is minimal. But these assurances are offset by research that has shown increased rates of cancer around the Santa Susana site. Another study was performed of the off-site population for for the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, and they found that the incidence rate was more than
0: 60% greater among residents living within a two-mile radius of the Santa Susana field. more than among residents living more than five miles away.
1: Several lawsuits have been filed against Boeing, Rocketdyne, and the state of California in the wake of deaths and illnesses from aggressive forms of cancer. One class action lawsuit resulted in a $30 million settlement, though claims of legal malfeasance tainted the settlement and left each of the claimants with only about $30,000, far short of what they would need to pay for ongoing medical treatments. Cleanup work did not begin until 2010, when NASA began work on the 20% of the site that they own. Boeing is responsible for 80% of Santa Susana, including the infamous Area 4, where the nuclear reactors were built. So far, Boeing has fought both the state and activists by trying to win a more lenient cleanup standard. In March of 2018, seven-year-old Hazley Hammersley succumbed to neuroblastoma, a cancer that generally affects internal organs like kidneys and can develop in the belly, chest, neck, pelvis, and bones. Her death led to renewed interest in the slow cleanup of the site and became a flashpoint for protests against DTSC's failed efforts. Her mother blames DTSC for her daughter's death, saying that she never would have moved to the area if she knew about Santa Susana and its contamination. Despite the mountain of evidence that people living near the Santa Susana site have been exposed to high levels of radioactive material and toxic waste and have increased rates of cancer, the state of California has maintained its line that the residents do not need to worry. On Friday, November 9th, the Woolsey fire broke out on the grounds of Santa Susana. Ten hours after the fire started, the DTSC put out a statement about the link between the fire and Santa Susana, claiming that there was no release of toxic substances and that their air quality monitors had not detected any contamination. In fact, it was Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles that took the initiative to warn residents of Greater Los Angeles that contaminated land was burning and may be releasing harmful compounds into the air. As Denise Duffield, Associate Director of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, said, quote, Though we must wait for fire authorities to conclude their investigation, it is ironic that an electrical substation built for a reactor that has melted down six decades ago may now be associated with a catastrophic fire that began on the SSFL site that is still badly contaminated from that accident and numerous other spills and releases. For now, the Woolsey fire has moved away from the Santa Susanna site, having burned through all the fuel as it moved west and east, threatening communities from Malibu to Calabasas. Crews are making progress containing the blaze, but that containment does little to mitigate any of the toxic substances that may have been released by the fire. DTSC is maintaining its line that the public has nothing to worry about, but PSRLA has put out strong statements questioning how they arrived at this conclusion. Dr. Bob Dodge, President of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles, said, quote, The Woolsey fire likely released and spread radiological and chemical contamination that was in SSFL soil and vegetation via smoke and ash. All wildfire smoke can be hazardous to health, but if SSFL had been cleaned up long ago as DTSC promised, we'd at least not have to worry about exposure to dangerous radionucleotides and chemicals as well. And PSR is right to be skeptical. Across California, there are literally dozens of toxic sites that are in various stages of cleanup or neglect. You can just walk through shuttered Fort Ord, a former army base that now sits as a ghostly monument to the military that powered the economy of the state for decades. And I'll tell you, having been there, it's very creepy. It's empty, and it's barren, and it feels lifeless, and it feels wrong. You can head south to New California to see the dying Salton Sea, an Army Corps of Engineers experiment to divert the Colorado River that resulted in an accidental man-made sea. In fact, the Salton Sea is the largest body of water in the state, and if not for the sea, it would be the point furthest below sea level on the planet, stealing that distinction from Death Valley's Badwater Basin. Poisoned by agricultural runoff and the fact that there shouldn't be a massive body of water there to begin with, fish die-offs are regular occurrences. Millions of years ago, there was a sea in that area, but those conditions are essentially alien to our modern ecosystem. Bombay Beach, once sold as a tourist attraction boosted by celebrities like Sunny and Cher, is now a field of rotting carcasses. There isn't really sand, it's more rotting remains of fishbone and flesh baking in the sun and just creating an awful, awful stench. Slightly inland from there is Slab City. When the federal government decided they didn't want to pay to clean up the old base, they gave the site to the state of California, which also decided to punt on the cleanup and left it as essentially abandoned, a semi-lawless area that exists as both a community and is a media-driven myth of freedom. Right next to it is an active bombing range. In fact, for many of the people who live in the slabs, their main source of revenue is collecting rubbish from the range to be sold for recycling, a sort of subsistence disaster capitalism. California's legacy with the military-industrial complex is far too long and complicated for me to cover here. But we don't need to cover all of it to show conclusively the links between contamination and military activity. The World War II boost to manufacturing that has continued to today has produced some of the most contaminated sites in the United States, if not the world. Yes, billions of dollars in revenue and wages were poured into our economy, numbers that are easy to chart and track and understand. Far more difficult to dissect is the legacy of cancer, illness, and lost time that has affected Californians for decades, and will continue to affect us all as these sites are left to fester, and the radioactive waste takes centuries to become harmless. Like I said at the top of this segment, California has 94 listed Superfund sites, but this list falls far short of capturing the actual damage that has been done to our ecology. There are hundreds of other sites that are contaminated with the runoff from weapons development, mining, experimentation, and agricultural development. Cleanup efforts find themselves stymied by corporate buyouts, indemnification agreements, and a lack of political will. And this is a theme that we will continue to see played out in Los Angeles and California for decades, perhaps centuries. Well, assuming we make it that far. Last week, we showed you this infrared time-lapse image of the natural gas leak in Porter Ranch, California. Uh, With this, we can see what people there have been smelling and getting sick from for nearly two months now. This huge, out-of-control natural gas leak that they just cannot get under control. Big rolling clouds of methane gas. This thing has been leaking for weeks now. And the gas company says they're still nowhere near figuring out how to stop the leak. Just about 15 miles northeast of Santa Susana sits Aliso Canyon. Aliso Canyon is the second largest natural gas storage facility in the United States, housing up to 86 billion cubic feet of natural gas. Aliso Canyon is operated by SoCal Gas and feeds around 20 million households. In 2015, a well at the site experienced a blowout. The blown out well was drilled in 1958, and at that time had safety valves installed. However, work done in the 1970s removed these safety valves and never replaced them. Since the well was not seen as critical, no one bothered to ensure that it was safe. The resulting leak was the largest natural gas disaster in the history of the United States. An estimated 91,000 metric tons of methane was released, rivaling the Deepwater Horizon disaster. However, the airborne methane will have much more far-reaching effects on the environment than the oil spill. Scientists are very aware that methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, and such a massive release is guaranteed to take years to equalize. Methane from the leak was detected as far away as Pasadena on the day that it happened, and caused concern among researchers who had never seen such high levels of methane pollution. For months, toxic gas spewed out of the mountain, poisoning nearby Porter Ranch and forcing the evacuation of about 12,000 people. In February of 2016, the state announced that the leak was finally closed, and the process of returning residents began shortly afterwards. Ultimately, SoCal Gas pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for not reporting the leak immediately and paid a $4 million fine. There was no penalty for their continued lies about the health risks of the leaks, though there are many, many civil lawsuits still working their way through the courts, so we have yet to see on that. For weeks before SoCal Gas admitted the size and danger of the leak, nearby residents had reported ill health effects, but their concerns were minimized by the state and regulators. When the effects were too pronounced to ignore, the state finally moved to relocate residents. Once the leak was sealed, the state moved to declare Porter Ranch as once again habitable, though this may not actually be the case. Despite assurances from the state and SoCal Gas, residents have reported continuing health effects. In my experience canvassing Porter Ranch, I've had many conversations with residents who routinely get their benzene levels checked by their doctors, who point to the parked cars on the street with a strange kind of orange pollen on it that is in fact toxic waste, still falling into the neighborhood. And I've even talked to new residents who have never heard of the incident and had no idea how close they lived to such a deadly installation. I've canvassed a gated community that sat right next to Aliso Canyon. Things there felt eerie, dead, for lack of a better word, it had the wrong vibe. These massive houses backed right up to the hill, and as I worked my way down the street close to the facility, I started to feel sick. I got lightheaded, I felt, for lack of a better term, strange. I drank a lot of water, but it did nothing to satiate my thirst. I still think about these huge houses, massive investments for these families that are sitting beneath a mountain of poison. I've visited many of California's toxic sites and they all have this similar eerie dead vibe. That sense that you have that things aren't right. All that information that your brain takes in subconsciously tells you that things here are wrong. They don't feel right. They don't vibe right. These places feel dead, eerily devoid of life and movement still and quiet and in some cases, tragic. I've never visited one of these sites and thought, I better make sure I can take it all in now. I don't know if this site will be here the next time I visit. Our state's toxic legacy seems literally enshrined, immutable, and timeless. And this brings me to my final point. The forces of gentrification are causing people to be displaced to areas that are toxic because that is where they can afford to live. Renters who can no longer afford Metro LA are moving farther out towards the deserts and the mountains, seeking affordable housing, even if it means adding hours to their commutes or putting their families in greater danger of wildfires. People looking to buy houses are left with few options. A real estate broker I canvassed told me about how there had been no slack in demand for housing around Porter Ranch. In the literal shadow of Aliso Canyon, he pointed two doors down and told me he sold that house for $840,000. Then he pointed across the street and said that house went for $860,000. And that trend will continue. Look, if these houses were in Encino, they'd be going for $1.5 to $2 million. This is what people can afford to buy, he told me. As our urban centers become hostile to working families, they are forced to seek housing elsewhere. But because of the legacy of negligence and outright criminality, their new housing puts them at greater risk. We are literally selling out our urban centers to the ultra-wealthy while pushing workers into toxic environments. And the state seems to have little interest in protecting anyone. We can't forget that Jerry Brown's sister sits on the board of Semper Energy, a company that is also implicated in the Aliso Canyon disaster, but also indemnified by the state. It is not hard to see the nepotism and corporate favoritism at work in Sacramento. Our housing crisis and our environmental crisis are inextricably linked. Until we get actual movement from Sacramento on both of these fronts, people will continue to get sick and die. People continue to move to toxic neighborhoods because that's what they can afford. They will try to save money while risking their health and having the state lie to them. What worries me about the Santa Susanna site and the Woolsey Fire is the massive credibility gap that the government regulators and private businesses have created through decades of malfeasance. Despite the politeness of DTSC staffers, it is impossible to shake the feeling that we are not being told everything. That information is being kept from public view and will not be released until it is politically convenient. This isn't to assert some grand conspiracy, but more to explicitly point at the weaknesses of our civic institutions in the face of military and industry pressure. How can we expect any agency to protect our health and our communities when the politicians that control the bureaucracy are funded by the very interests that are poisoning us? We don't need DTSC to be incompetent or corrupt or evil if the people setting their funding and mission are always looking out for the interests of the polluters. This isn't a story about one point of failure. It is the story of systemic failure. Perhaps in the aftermath of these fires, we will finally have conversations about what our development should look like. Perhaps we will move to clean up and regulate our toxic disasters. Perhaps we will invest strongly in our urban centers and protect working families. But I'm not holding my breath. Well, actually I am, but I can only do that for so long. None of these struggles is isolated. None of these struggles can be won in a vacuum. It seems that the plan until now has been to have no plan. Our command of technology has made it impossible to escape the ill effects and our continued historical amnesia makes each of these places a hidden danger.
0: While dangerous emissions could have been leaking out of the Aliso Canyon storage facility for years.
1: That's what a CBS 2 News investigation has uncovered. And one teacher says it may have led to her cancer. Thank you for taking this trip with me through our buried history. As we keep finding again and again, nothing will stay buried our toxic legacy will rise to the surface and will harm us. We must begin to organize around the idea of community protection, not just in pressuring the state to clean these sites, but to create healthy, affordable housing. If we want to win this, we need to never lose sight of the fact that this is a multi-generational battle, and it is a battle that we're losing. As the fires continue to rage on in California, I know that the body counts are going to climb higher, the destruction is going to take a greater toll. Eventually, these fires will be put out, but we all know that we're just waiting for the next one. The point of the next 5, 10, 20 years is to get us to a place of stability where we're not always waiting for the next disaster. Thank you very much. I'll be back with some really good interviews in the next couple of weeks, but this has been a really long week, a really long couple of weeks. Take care of yourselves, hug your comrades, and never lose your sense of outrage.